Well, uh, this morning we're going to start focusing our attention on chapters 29 and 30, and we're actually taking the two chapters together, uh, which I suppose is obvious after reading both of them. Um, For our studies today, we're going to make it all the way through chapter 29 and then into six verses of chapter 30. That's how far we'll get in our studies today. We'll come back next week, uh, Lord willing, and we'll, we'll finish out chapter 30. Uh, But we're coming to take those two chapters together because ultimately, chapters 29 and 30 are focusing our attention on a a complete understanding of God's King, a complete view, a more whole view of God's King. That's the theme uh, that we'll see coming to the surface of of this text today. And uh, and so as we begin, we'll just just set the context in this way. We have all probably had the experience of certain relationships in our lives that are relatively incomplete. Uh, There's a sense of fullness maybe that's lacking in certain relationships. Maybe it's it's a relationship with our coworkers, for example. Uh, We we kind of know them. Uh, We we punch the clock. We endure eight hours in the same office space maybe as them. But because we never really spend any time outside of work or because we don't have any other meaningful connection with them, uh, while we we kind of know them, there's an incompleteness of relationship there. We, We never really know the people well. Uh, the same thing can be true in family life. There may be family members whom we love, family members who we're, we're close to in one sense just by uh, the fact that we are related to them. Uh, but with that, we still don't really know them. Maybe they, they've lived far away for a long time or maybe uh, we've drifted apart over the years. The relationship isn't as meaningful as, as it once was. We still have that family connection, but ultimately there, there's that sense of incompleteness in our relationship uh, just because we, we do have this incomplete knowledge of the person. We haven't spent the time with them uh, that we really need to spend in order to know them well. And when it comes to our lives of faith as we follow Jesus, uh, this element of incompleteness can be something that is present at certain levels. Uh, for example, we may have, have professed faith in Christ at some point in history past, but then as time goes on, uh, our, our knowledge of the Lord, our, our true awareness and personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, it just isn't what, what maybe we would like it to be. We know some things about Him. Uh, we know many true things about Him, maybe. But ultimately, we find ourselves incomplete in our relationship to Jesus. We, we just don't know Him as fully as we desire to know Him. We don't know Him as fully as we're, we're convinced we ought to know Him. Uh, and, and this isn't so uncommon. Uh, pastors of an earlier generation put words to this when they spoke about, about some uh, who go through the Christian life having a half-learned Christ. That was their expression. Uh, that, that statement is meant to convey that we can know something about Jesus. We can even know some, some very true things about Jesus. But what we need is not a partial knowledge of, of our Lord. Instead, we need to be growing in our knowledge constantly. We need to be maturing toward a fuller and more complete understanding of who Jesus is, what it means to follow Him. We need a complete picture of God's King, not a half-learned Christ. And as we come to these chapters in 1 Samuel, it's this focus on a, it's this focus on a more uh, complete picture of God's choice king that's in view. Uh, of course, we know that as, 
That as David is a king after God's own heart, he's pointing us forward ultimately to King Jesus. We're continually setting the context of Old Testament narratives in that frame. Uh, Jesus expects that, that when he arrives on the scene, we have this in John 5 as we've talked about regularly, he expects uh, the, the most learned religious leaders of his day to recognize him for who he is based on Old Testament revelation. So we know as we consider King David out of a passage like this, uh, that's meant to compel us forward in a consideration of King Jesus. So we're always reminding ourselves of that, and that's important to do because what we discover as we study uh, these final chapters of 1 Samuel, especially as we now are approaching the final destruction of King Saul, which we'll have in chapter 31, uh, here the narrator has this burden to help complete our understanding of what God's choice king is really like, uh, which is the narrative of David, again, points forward ultimately to Christ. Uh, we know that we need this because we, we don't want to suffer under a half-learned understanding of God's king. Uh, our comfort, our peace, our perseverance, our obedience, all of these things hinge on the fact that the Scriptures reveal Jesus to us. The Holy Spirit of God directs our attention to the Lord Jesus because He's the one we need to understand. He's the one we're driven to know. He's the one we're compelled to believe in in this unique sense of, of saving and, and hope-filled ways because ultimately in knowing Him, uh, we, find, we find the one who provides our refuge. And we feel that need. We feel that need to know Jesus in a more complete way. Maybe that's even something you feel uniquely in your own, in your own heart today. Uh, especially as we face different seasons of, of our lives of faith, this concern can strike us. How, how should I really be thinking about Jesus, God's ultimate king? How, how do I really need to understand Jesus in my mind? What kind of view of Christ should I have? What are expectations I ought to have of, of what it looks like to know Him and follow Him in faith? We have... Uh, we have a need for clarity along these lines. In a passage like these two chapters, chapters 29 and 30, it helps us. Uh, so here we have truth uh, to encourage us in a more complete understanding, ultimately, of, of what God's King is really like, what the Lord Jesus is really like. Uh, so what we're going to do in terms of framing our study is we're going to take a little bit of time, first of all here this morning, uh, to set up how this theme of completeness is present in our chapter. We need to say something about that. And then from there, we're going to work through chapter 29 and then through verse 6 of chapter 30, uh, working out some aspects of completion that the narrative reveals to us. And then next week, we'll come back and we'll finish out uh, our, our points from chapter 30. Um, but, but in the meantime, though, we need, to, we need to think this out a bit, especially as we consider how this completeness theme is present for us here. So we need, to do, we need to do some significant Bible study just as we begin to bring some, some clarity to what's going on. So, so, so we'll do that now. Um, there's no doubt that the focus of chapters 29 and 30 is on King David very specifically. That's a good place to start. There's no doubt, and we know that for a number of reasons, uh, but not least of all because David's name is mentioned a total of 33 times in these two chapters put together. So this section is about God's king. It's about David. David, 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 David. His name is repeated 33 times throughout, throughout the chapters. And then we have this completeness theme attached to David. And I, and I want to explain that a little bit. Um, we often talk about the various literary devices that are represented in Hebrew narrative. Uh, when the Bible was written, as, as the Old Testament was com composed, uh, the authors 
didn't have ways of emphasizing things like we have ways of emphasizing things in written English today. We know that. So there's, there's no uh, bold font. There's no underlying, uh, underlining things that we want to emphasize. There's no uh, capitalization. There's no chapter, uh, chapter division font size changes or anything like that. Uh, the ways we often emphasize things in written English aren't present in biblical he- Hebrew or in Greek for that matter as we get into the New Testament. Uh, However, that doesn't mean that the inspired authors of Scripture don't have significant literary ways of making their emphasis clear. And from time to time, we talk about some of those different literary tools that they have. One of those literary tools in Hebrew is is an exercise of of particular use of numbers. Um, and, And an example of that, the one which we'll fix our attention on as we come to this text today, an example of that is actually found in the number three. So, so, so in Hebrew, the number three, it represents wholeness. It represents completeness that tends towards life. And this is something that's actually carried all the way through, through the Bible. Even in the New Testament, in the Greek text, the authors are writing against this Old Testament backdrop, and, and they, in, they include the number three in literary ways. So, so, so you don't just think I'm weird bringing this up. I want to I explain this to you a little more, uh, how, how this is biblically significant. So, For example, it's on the third day of creation in Genesis 1 that the waters are separated from the dry land and vegetation is created. So so in that sense, life is formed on day three in the creation account. So that's significant. And then later on, as we think through Israel's history, um, there, there are three patriarchs in the faith represented, uh, representing a kind of completeness. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Uh, In the narrative of Israel's exodus from Egypt, it's on the third day of Israel's time at Mount Sinai that the Lord descends upon the mountain and makes a covenant with His people. Jonah's experience of rescue from the great fish, that happened on the third day. Um, We we get into the New Testament, and in the coming of Christ, we have the Magi arriving from the east, and how many gifts did they bring? They bring three gifts, complete gifts. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul speaks of being taken up into the third heaven. So so the wholeness of of God's heavenly presence is something that that Paul experienced in some some way. Um, Throughout the Scriptures, God reveals His own personhood in three parts, doesn't He? God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. Uh, God's eternal relationship to, to time is described in places like Revelation 1 as, as, as Him being the one who was, who is, who is to come. So that, that uh, emphasizes the, the, the Lord's relationship to the completeness and totality of time. He's eternal, right? And then those are just a quick set of examples. But, but all through Scripture, three is this number of completion. It's a number that reflects that. It's used regularly by, by various authors and all, all across genres. In fact, throughout Jesus' passion narrative, if you, if you think through that, we'll come upon this with Easter in just a couple of weeks, but there are threes everywhere. So, so Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in three phases. You remember that? Peter denies Jesus three times. Pilate declares Jesus innocent three times before he calls for his crucifixion. Uh, Jesus was crucified in the third hour of the day, Mark 15. There were three hours of darkness that covered the land while Jesus hung on the cross. On the third day, obviously, Jesus rose from the grave. When Jesus restores Peter after Peter's denial of him, he asks Peter if he loves him three times. Complete restoration of Peter there. So, So there are threes everywhere. It's a number that's meant to indicate completeness, wholeness, perfection of God and His plans. It's a literary tool for the biblical writers. Now, we get into 1 Samuel 29 and 30, and and we can't miss the fact that we have got references to threes all over the place in these two chapters in a unique way. 
So not only is David's name mentioned 33 times, but in chapter 29, starting there, we have David's third deception of King Achish, the third time David deceives Achish. And then as the narrative goes on, Achish actually defends David's honor three times. Right? We're told David left Achish in the morning three times. The verb used to return or go back is repeated three times. Into chapter 30, and David and his men get back to Ziklag. How does chapter 30 begin? They get back to Ziklag on the third day. In chapter 30, we have the third time that, that Samuel, in Samuel that the expression bitter of soul is used. David faces the loss of three wives total by the end of chapter 30 uh, for Michael when she's taken from him by Saul earlier, and now the Amalekites have taken Ahinoam and Abigail. Uh, David inquires of the Lord uh, in, in verse 8, and he gets a three-part answer to his inquiry. A third of David's troops are tired, and he leaves them to rest in verse 10. David and his men meet an Egyptian who was abandoned by the Amalekites three days earlier, verse 13, and, and he spent three days and three nights without food and water, verse 12. And then, and then uh, th there's even more. Dri the term for driving livestock is repeated three times. It's a very actually derogatory term. It's, it's, it's speaking of people being driven like livestock three times here. So we get into these two chapters, and we see there are these threes everywhere. And with a sense of being good readers, you know, when you're in school and your teacher is teaching you how to read, one thing the teacher is going to be speaking to you about is what it looks like to be a good reader. We want to learn how to be good readers. Part of being a good reader of the Bible is being able to see sometimes how these narratives work with a sense of the literary tools that the author is using in order to highlight significant things that we're called to pay attention to. And three reflects this focus on completion. It reflects the, the fullness and wholeness of God's purposes. And in a chapter with threes everywhere, and in a chapter where the name of God's anointed king is repeated 33 times, we can narrow in on what the writer is directing our attention to. In fact, this is about as, as bold font as bold font can get, Hebrewly speaking, right? In all of this, we're being directed toward a more complete picture. Here's completion of who? David, 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 God's anointed king. Right? Remembering as we go that, that David is ultimately a shadow pointing us forward to the substance and fulfillment of God's design for kingship in the Lord Jesus. So we come to a passage like this and we see the author's emphasis and we ask ourselves, how, how does this help us have a more complete understanding of what to expect from God's king? How does this help fill out categories for us in terms of what ultimately the Lord Jesus himself is going to be like? And again, this becomes very practical because we walk this path of faith. We follow the Lord in our lives and we need to know him well. We don't want to suffer under a half-learned Christ. We need to know what Jesus is like and what to expect as we see him uh, being the king that we ultimately need. We need to be maturing and, and more and more full of our understanding of who Jesus is. And so a passage like this we see is helpful to us. So, with all that said, um, what, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, just take two main points for, from this section today. Again, into verse 6 of chapter 30. We'll do three more next week. But focusing our attention on, on, on expectations of, of the complete king. What, what does it look like to understand, to have a more complete view of God's king? Uh, we'll start in chapter 29, and we'll actually take all of chapter 29, which is only 11 verses. We'll take all of chapter 29 as our first point. And in chapter 29, we'll see that, that God's king, our expectations, a complete view of God's king, is going to include the fact that he causes two very different reactions. God's king causes two very different reactions. 
So if you look at chapter 29, as, as we get into this here, um, part of what's happened in this chapter, compared to chapter 28, which we just finished, is, is, the, is the, the narrator actually does a little bit of time travel for us. Uh, because back in chapter 28, verse 3, remember how we already had the Philistines, they, they'd gone out, they'd arrayed, they'd, they'd assembled for war, and that's what Saul saw that made him so upset, and he inquired of the Lord only briefly just to turn, uh, set his faith aside, go to the medium of Endor looking for guidance in that, in that evil kind of way. Uh, so he had that array of the Philistine military out there in front of Saul. He saw that. Uh, he, he went in a direction contrary to faith. Uh, but here, as we start in on 29, uh, just like we'd have in a, in a movie, here the, the narrator actually begins 29 going back to an earlier point in time uh, when the Philistines were first preparing to head out and set up against Israel in battle. So, so really, if we're going to be uh, splicing thing to, things together time-wise, this section is a continuation of the first two verses of chapter 28, where Achish had said that he trusted David and was going to make him his bodyguard for life. Uh, really, time-wise, we run right from that into chapter 29, if, if we were just going to do chron uh, something chronologically. Um, so that flows right into the section we're at now, where Achish makes David his bodyguard, and we remember what's going on in that David is on the run from Saul. He's been hiding for the last year and four months in Philistine territory. Uh, king Achish, who's the king of Gath, one of five major Philistine cities. Uh, Achish has given David the city of Ziklag to occupy during this time. And, 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 and while David has been there, he's been conducting these raids on Israel's enemies. We were told about that. And he actually brings Achish some plunder, probably as kind of a lease price for getting to use Ziklag as his home base. But David's been telling Achish that this plunder is coming from the town of, of David's own people. The towns of David's own people. Now we know as the reader, we're let in on the fact that that's not actually true. David's been plundering Israel's enemies, uh, not his own people. However, Achish doesn't know that. Uh, so as they're, as they're preparing for battle against Israel, Achish has made David his bodyguard back in chapter 28. And now we pick that timeline up here in chapter 29 where we have all the Philistine military units together as they set up to go out against Israel. And so in 29 verse 1, we read that the Philistine leaders were, were basically passing through their troops in a review of their military units. So, so the leaders that are uh, described there, that they would be the rulers of the other four main Philistine uh, cities. They would be Achish's counterparts. So Achish is king of Gath. These would have been Achish's counterparts in the other four main cities there. So, so the kings are looking over the troops, and Achish is being followed by David and his men as, as one of these five leaders who's conducting inspections. Achish is being followed by David and his men, which is no surprise because what do we know? Well, David was just appointed Achish's bodyguard. So Achish and his men, they're going along with, or David and his men, they're going along with Achish. And as they uh, work through this review process of the troops, the commanders of the military units are not even remotely happy. So, so verse 3, they confront Achish and they say, why in the world do you have these Hebrews with you? Which is a, a troop of Hebrews following out, or about to go out to war against these people. What in the world do you have a, a troop of Hebrews following you around for? To which Achish replies in verse 3, oh, it's okay, David's cool. Achish says, David's a servant of Saul, uh, but, but he defected some time ago. He's been with me for a while. I found no fault with him during his time here. It's okay, David's fine. So, so Achish tries to, to set these commanders at ease. However, Achish's good word on David's behalf does not remotely comfort the unit commanders. They have some battle savvy to be sure. Verse 4, the commanders are extremely angry, the text says with Achish. 
They tell Achish, David's got to go back to the city you assigned him, namely Ziklag. He's got to go home because there's no way he's going out into battle with us. And the reason for that is obvious in verses 4 and 5 because David could go out and battle with us. And, and what could David do in battle? Well, he could really easily get himself back in the good graces of Saul if he brought Saul a bunch of our heads. Maybe this is David's ploy to get, back, to get back into the good graces of his king. And then they say, don't you remember the song they sing about him, Achish? Which is the song they sang after David defeated Goliath and took his head, Goliath of Gath. Right? What's the song? Well, Saul's slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. It seems like you forgot the song, Achish. Uh, David's the guy who chopped off Goliath's head. Uh, we're afraid he's going to turn on us and chop off our heads and get back in the good graces of Saul. There is no way he's going out with perfectly reasonable argument. Achish doesn't see it, though. The wool's still pulled over his eyes uh, to, to a certain degree uh, with regard to what, what David's been, been up to while living in his district. Uh, remember, David's deception in these situations, it was a reminder to us that while he is God's anointed king, David can only be a shadow of the anointed king. He, he's not perfect. He's sinful. He's deceived Achish. But Achish doesn't know it. So Achish feels bad about things uh, when he has to talk to David then in the rest of the chapter and tell him he has to go back to, to Ziklag. And even though David protests, uh, protests the decision, which is kind of interesting, David uh, continues to try to save face with Achish. Why, why can't I come out with you? Still, Achish sends him back. And that's how chapter 29 ends. And verse 11 there, David and his men got up early in the morning to return uh, to the land of the Philistines. So back to Achish, or back to uh, uh, back to Ziklag, they go, the Philistines go out and, and position for war. Um, now, now, with those details in our minds, uh, we, we can make some application here. Uh, we, we already talked about how often the number three appears in this section. So there's this idea of completeness as it relates to understanding God's king. And, and in this interaction with Achish and the other Philistines, we are helped to complete a more full picture, a more complete picture of what to expect as we, as we grow in our knowledge of God's king. So, so, so we're, going to, we're going to think that out here in, in just a moment. One thing I do want to say, just in terms of a textual question, is we do read this and we wonder, what in the world was David's plan? Because he had aligned himself with Achish, but we know David's not going to go against the Lord's anointed. We know he's not going to kill Saul. So what was David doing? And the commentators, my goodness, they just all need to get together and have lunch because they all have a whole bunch of different opinions on this matter. But, but we do know from the biblical narrative, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, Achish, uh, the city of Gath ends up being grafted into David's kingdom. We talked about that a little bit last week. In fact, David will have some loyal Gathites with him when his son Absalom is out to kill him. He'll have 600 loyal men from Gath with him. And not only that, but later David is going to uh, actually keep the Ark of the Covenant in Gath for a little while before he moves it to his next, his next resting place. So there's a special relationship that David has with Gath, with Achish, where we can expect that as he went out to war, he probably would have slain many Philistines. That was probably his plan, though we have evidence from later on that probably his plan was to continue to protect Achish and as many Gathites as possible. So that does seem to be possibly what's in David's mind. We don't know. We've got to say something about it, though, because it is strange. Like, David, what, what are you thinking? What, what is your plan here? All right. So, we have that. But, let's think now about these two different responses to God's king that are, that are reflected in this chapter. On the one hand, you have this posture of total rejection. So, you've got these commanders, don't you, who want, who want uh, David absolutely gone. They want nothing to do with him. They can't believe that Achish would let David be around. 
In fact, the passage emphasizes just how angry they are that, that Achish lets David be, be this close to them. So we see here that when it comes to a complete understanding of God's king, one effect that he has is, is that of, of, of stirring up a thorough and even angry rejection of himself. That's something that's true about God's king. Right? The songs sung about God's king's victory here don't cause the Philistines to bow the knee. They cause the Philistines to want to be rid of him. Right? And we relate this to how Christ is God's climactic king uh, we, we relate this to how Jesus ultimately, as he's revealed in the gospel time and time again, we're brought to see that Jesus affects responses, and oftentimes that response is rejection. To, to understand God's ultimate King Jesus more completely, we have to see that he does affect a response of rejection at times. Uh, we, we have it most notably with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. A complete view of God's King includes the fact that many reject him. Get him out of here. We don't, we don't want him here. And we just need to be aware of this response because being aware of this response helps us, on the one hand, not be overwhelmed by a sense of failure when those who are around us persistently want to have nothing to do with Jesus. On the one hand, this doesn't completely surprise us. This is to be expected. People don't want God's king around. And this also helps us remain faithful. Because it's not uncommon for Christian believers, for Christian churches, to try to frame King Jesus in a way that's less than truthful because they don't want Jesus to be rejected. You know? and, and while, of course, none of us want Jesus to be rejected, that desire can become improper when we go so far as presenting Jesus as the one who, who readily and happily embraces and, 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 and supports everything you might embrace and support. You don't, need to, you don't need to reject the Lord Jesus. Come and he'll, he'll be whoever you need him to be. Jesus can be depicted as one who is, who, who, is, who is love as we'd like to define love with no notion of the truth about his justice or holiness or even what his love really means. Jesus is the healer of wounds, but not the one who comes to call sinners to repentance. Jesus is the good example, but, but, but not the one who died on the cross to purchase the only way we can ever be forgiven of our sins. Right? Jesus can be framed in less than proper terms simply because our view of Christ is incomplete and we think we must do everything we can possibly do to make Jesus palatable. But he is the one who will be rejected by some. Which Isaiah, the prophet, made very clear to us too. The suffering servant who comes, the Christ who comes, what is he? Well, he is despised and rejected by men. We need to remember that if we're going to have a complete picture of God's king. But of course, that's not the only reaction that God's king affects. He also affects a posture of affirmation and trust, which we see very prevalent in this chapter as well. And in all of chapter 29, it's interesting to note, there's only one mention of God's covenant promise-keeping name. The name Yahweh is only mentioned once, and it's spoken by the mouth of the Philistine Achish, which is just interesting. Verse 6, as Yahweh lives, you're an honorable man, he says to David. Now, knowing that David has been deceiving Achish, that's, that's troubling. But again, it's the big picture that's important here. The foreign king, a ruler of the enemies of God's people, not only takes God's promise-keeping name upon his lips, but then three times throughout this passage, he vindicates David as somebody he trusts. Which is actually not unfounded. Again, we talked about this, but as time goes on, this, this Gath element becomes, becomes critical. Later, when the prophets denounce the Philistine cities, 
Gath actually isn't listed in the denouncement of, of Philistine cities. Gath is uniquely brought in in this way. So, so Achish's trust in David is not completely unfounded here. But all that to say, it's a reminder to us that a complete picture of God's king includes the fact that he brings about these two different reactions. One is total rejection and one is trust, which means that when someone is rejecting God's king, Jesus, we don't alter the message. We don't try to dress David up in Philistine-looking clothes, so to speak. Jesus is who Jesus is, and along with that, but along with that, we also never lose heart because God's king will be trusted in by the most unlikely of people. Who would have thought David's threefold vindication in Philistine territory in front of the Philistine army would come from the king of Goliath's hometown? You never know who's going to trust. And we've covered this ground before in the narrative, but it seems to be an emphasis that's, that's presented more than once so we can notice it again. We can ask ourselves, is there somebody in my life who's rejecting God's king right now? And that brings me great heartache. Is there somebody like that in your life right now? As we know what it looks like to, to understand the completeness of God's king, we must not lose hope because Achishes come to faith all the time. So we keep on with the plain and truthful message about the king as that reflects a complete view of, of who Jesus really is. So a, com a complete view of God's king, in, in part it, it means that we're aware of the fact that some will reject, some will embrace. He affects reactions differently. That's one. Secondly, and lastly for today, we also need to see that a complete picture of God's king includes knowing that, that God's king is also the one who faces darkness faithfully. He faces darkness faithfully. And this is verses 1 to 6. Of, of chapter 30. Uh, verses 1 to 6, they, they reflect really extraordinary darkness, extraordinary sorrow. Um, in fact, why don't I just, I'll, I'll just read those again for us here quickly so we can have them in our, in our minds. Um, so David and his men there, they arrive in Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had raided the Negev and attacked and burned Ziklag. They had also kidnapped the women and everyone in it, from youngest to oldest, they had killed no one, but had carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. David and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelite and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had also been kidnapped. David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him for they were all very bitter, bitter of soul, over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So it's a, it's a sorrowful section there. Achish had told David that he couldn't fight with them. Uh, so David returns to the town assigned to him like he was told to do. And he returns only to find that the Amalekites, those, those historic roving enemies of Israel, uh, they, they had come and taken advantage of the fact that the Philistines and the Israelites were distracted by one another and they'd been conducting raids on the land. Uh, the Amalekites raided the area. They burned David's town. In fact, in verse 3, the Hebrew actually reads that they, that they burned it with fire. They burned it with fire. And, and we can see why our English Bibles just translate that as burn because burned with fire is a bit redundant. right? What else do you burn stuff with? Burned with fire. Except, again, in the style of Hebrew emphasis, burned with fire is, is a colloquial kind of expression that speaks to a total comprehensive destruction. 
It's not just like they lit a few houses on fire. Everything is burned to the ground is what's being communicated there. Total destruction of the town. And along with that, the Amalekites, who were known for taking captives to be their slaves. We actually meet an Egyptian slave of the Amalekites on the road later on. So they're known for taking uh, their, their captives as slaves. They'd taken the woman and the children of Ziklag. And, and verse 2 reads more literally, not that they'd carried them off, but they'd driven them along. It, it's a word to speak to how livestock are moved. So the town is burned. The women and children, including David's wives, verse 5, have been driven off like, like cattle to be slaves. And in response to all this, in verse 4, David and his band of, of extremely effective and tough fighting men, we know from other texts that David's mighty men, who proved to be extraordinary warriors, they're with him at this time. The last of those mighty men gathered with David while he was living in this town. David and all his fighting men, they wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep, the text says. So, so these, just as an example, these are men who are so strong, men like Josheb, who's so strong, he actually took out 800 enemies with his spear in a single battle episode. These are strong men. Imagine them weeping until they had no strength. That's an extraordinary picture of sorrow. Complete and total destruction of all things that were loved. It's actually not dissimilar to the account of, of the start of Job's suffering in Job chapter 1, only this time it's multiplied by 600 fighting men. It's bitter. So this is a scene of unimaginable anguish that's reflected here. Possessions burned to the point of total destruction, family driven off like cattle. And, and, and to add to that sorrow for David... Not only are his wives taken, as we're told there, uh, but his men are so overcome with grief, they blame David for the situation and talk about stoning him because, very literally, verse 6, they were bitter of soul, we're told. And we can hardly blame them for being bitter of soul, though their reaction does seem a bit harsh. Uh, they must have felt David should have left fighting men behind, maybe, to protect the women and children. They blame him at some level. Whatever the case may be, David's men are in anguish, and David, God's king, is in double anguish here. Not only is he experiencing the sorrow of loss, like all his men are experiencing, but he, but he is also, again, as it reads very literally in Hebrew, David's also enveloped or constricted by the fact that his men are conspiring to stone him to death. He's surrounded by that murder threat, the text tells us. So what is God's king going to do? What did Saul do in the last chapter when he faced what seemed to be overwhelming odds? Well, Saul was quick to go right off the path of faith and turn to a practitioner of dark arts, acts forbidden by God. Saul looked for alternatives to trust him. So what, is, what does the king after God's own heart do? What does David do in far more extreme circumstances? Well, in the end of verse 6, we're told David found strength in the Lord his God. Found strength in the Lord his God. What in the world does that mean? Right? If you're going through a period of extraordinary hardship and, and a, a well-intending Christian brother or sister showed up at your house and they said, I just want to encourage you to find strength in the Lord your God. Would you find that helpful or would you find that to be a patronizing encouragement? It would be wonderful to find strength in the Lord my God, wouldn't it? But right now I'm feeling pretty low. What does it mean to find strength in the Lord his God? Does it mean that David had some kind of gospel secret that got him access to a sense of relief? Does it mean that David managed to conjure up feelings of faith when he, all his strength is gone on the darkest day he's ever experienced and, and when he's out of strength from crying while his own men are planning to kill him? He, he's worked up some comforting thoughts and prayers. Is that what this means? No, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. We need to notice a couple things about this. First of all, first of all what we need to notice uh, in, in, in a very unique way, 
is that we see something deeply relational and personal here in what we're told about David. David's posture reflects a vital personal faith. The text doesn't say that David found strength in the Lord, the God of Israel. The text says David found strength in the Lord, his God. His God. And the Lord with whom he had a deeply personal posture of communion and faith. David's faith wasn't a political tool like it was for Saul. And David's faith wasn't a matter of mere family heritage. David's faith was a trust that caused him to recognize that the Lord who made heaven and earth, the Lord, the Lord who is the shepherd of Israel, as Psalm 80 puts it, is also the Lord who is my shepherd. So David takes comfort in the Lord his God. If, if we're going to have a complete understanding of God's king, we have to see the significance of this fidelity. On David's darkest day, he turned to the Lord for his strength in an intensely personal kind of way. It's a picture ultimately that reaches climactic proportions in places like the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying weighed down by unimaginable darkness and he's praying things like, not my will but yours be done. That great intimacy that Jesus is, 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 is displaying there before the Father deep personal posture before God the Father amid extreme hardship. God's king faces darkness faithfully and in this very personal kind of way. So David turned to the Lord personally. There's a dynamic there that reflects David's life of a heart yielded to the Lord in that kind of personal way. And not only that, but in the language that's used here, we're also given a little glimpse into what might more be going on here in David's own heart because uh, because on an earlier occasion, at another very dark time, not quite this dark, but a pretty dark time, when David uh, was actually in between being betrayed by two sets of his own, by two sets of his own people back in chapter 23, uh, Jonathan, Saul's son, came and visited him in secret. And on that occasion, we were told that David uh, was strengthened in the Lord by Jonathan. Same type of language is here. David was strengthened by Jonathan. And Jonathan strengthened David, if you remember, by recounting God's promise. He, he brought David back to what God said. You're going to be anointed as king. These things won't be the end of you. Don't forget what God has said. And now here's David, really about as, as alone as alone can be. His, his men want to stone him. And, and probably, as the timing of this narrative is put together, probably this is about exactly the same time Jonathan himself is killed in battle in chapter 31. Right? David is alone. But here we have David turning to the Lord in a personal posture of faith and following in a path his friend had once shown him on another dark day, doing the very thing that Jonathan once walked him through, strengthening him in the Lord. It must be as David exercised himself in this, he did what Jonathan helped him to do last time. He remembered God's promises. That's how this looked the last time the language was used. This is how David strengthened himself in the Lord, despite the sorrow. God's purposes will be accomplished. It's, it's reflected, it's a posture reflected in Jesus' Gethsemane prayer. It's actually reflected in Jesus in a very conscious way for Christ on the cross as he recognizes all the things that he's doing, as he's, as he's trusting in the Lord through the process of enduring the, 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 the whole episode of crucifixion. Jesus is doing things, we're told by the gospel writers, so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. Jesus is the one who's aware of the promises of God, aware that he's keeping the promises of God. He's making those come to fruition. Just as we see with David here, this, this language that reminds us David is looking back to what God has said. There's a strength that comes from knowing what God has said God will do. Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment in that in doing what God had said he will do. Jesus brings that to a climax by fulfilling that with his own life. But we see it portrayed here even, even in these circumstances with David. He's strengthened in the Lord knowing there's this personal relationship with God and recognizing the fact that this is the God who keeps promises uh, that, that he's made. 
And, and so in all this, it helps us have this more complete view of our king as, as we understand what faithfulness looks like because these are dark circumstances and we're brought to see that the true king of God's people is the one who is faithful in the darkness. He doesn't run after alternatives that might be present to him. We remember Jesus in the, in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. He doesn't go after those alternatives that the devil offers to him, but instead he goes back to the, to the word of God. What has God already said? He takes comfort and strength from that and perseveres forward in that. In the darkness, Jesus trusted. And that's crucial for us to know because we can face circumstances that seem so dark at times and we can feel so weak at times in our own perseverance in these kinds of things. But as we're brought to understand the complete and perfect king, we're brought to recognize here is the king who not only trusted God's promises perfectly, but ultimately is the one who procured God's promises finally for me. In my own weakness, I'm looking to the one who is complete in the sense that I can rely upon him and his nail-scarred hands to hold me up as I go forward, recognizing that he's the one who purchased what I need in order to persevere. There's, there's, there's no other place I can go, no other hope I can have than to be secured in not only the, the promise-making, but the promise-keeping and promise-procuring work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that about Christ if we're going to come to a complete Christ. We come to the one who ultimately has fulfilled all of these things perfectly, and through his perfect fulfillment of these things, then promises us the timely mercy and grace we need as we go through our own seasons of dark. Because rather than being left alone in those times, we're actually in the company, in the personal company of the Lord who is my shepherd, the one who has endured even greater hardships than we could ever endure, and the one who promises to go before us, to be beside us, to follow hard after us, to bring us to our ultimate place of rest, the ultimate uh, realization of God's promises for us. And so in this, we can be renewed very much in what it, in what it means to, uh, to take comfort to know the living God. One commentator makes the point uh, here where David, David could say, uh, Ziklag is burned, and David, David, as a result, he couldn't say, my house, right? My house is gone. Ziklag is burned, he gets there. He couldn't say, my family, my family's been carried off. D David's men are with him, but they're very angry. He can't even say, my army or my men, they're about ready to kill him. But in the darkness, David can still say, my God. And that's where we need to find ourselves as we come to a complete understanding of Christ. No matter what may befall me, Jesus is the one who ultimately keeps me. He's the one I find rest in. I may not be able to say my life is what I hoped. I may not be able to say my job is all I expected. I may not be able to say my health is intact, my relationships are whole and promising, and my bank account is just where I like it. I may, be, may not be able to say any of those things. But with a complete view of God's King, with eyes turned toward Jesus, I can say my God. And I know He hears me. And I know He preserves me. I know He identifies with me in the, sorrow, in the sorrow that I may experience. And I know He ultimately holds me and keeps me until the end. And so we're thankful for these things because David the shadow points forward to Jesus the substance and helps us move beyond a half-learned Christ to see more fully who the Lord's King really is. Uh, he affects reactions differently. Some will reject Lord Jesus, but the most unexpected people will embrace him. And he also, in the face of great darkness, is the one who remains completely and totally faithful. And so because we have him, we finish like we will today with, with lyrics like these, in times of waiting, times of need, when I know loss, when I am weak. I mean, how much of our life does that define? In times of waiting, times of need, when I'm 
when I know loss, when I am weak. I know his grace will renew these days. Why? Because the Lord is my salvation. He's the one I'll be trusting. And we're brought to see that again uh, from the truth of the passage today. So we're thankful for God's word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we praise you as the, as, as the great and climactic king. We praise you as the one who has endured great darkness but remained faithful. We praise you as the one who is all truth. Uh, there, is no, uh, there is no shadow due to change with you, but you are the one who is consistent and, and reveals your will in the scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that we would take comfort in knowing you more fully, that you would bring us along in a knowledge of the significance of, of who you are and what you've done, and in a personal way that brings us to a place of relying and depending upon you. Uh, we desire the peace that can only come from that. We long for it, Lord, and so we pray that you would work that in our hearts in a refreshing way this morning, uh, ultimately for the sake of your own glory. We ask this uh, in your name. Amen.